I will tell you this, if this falls off, I'll take it up a notch. All right. Um, it's, it's not, I'm not used to this, so. But I'm not, uh, I'm not used to handheld. I'm used to this thing right here. So we're in Acts 11 today. So if you'll have your Bibles with you, let's turn to Acts chapter 11. We'll be considering verses 19 through 30. Thankful for Randy's uh, asking me to come and stand in his stead. Sorry about the circumstances, but I'm glad to hear that your pastor is on the mend. Praise the Lord for that. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Let us hear the word of our God. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. May God add richness and meaning to his word this morning. You know, the world would be a chaos without habits, wouldn't it? I mean, some of us really like to be spontaneous, but it would be quite chaotic without habits. Habits could be described as behavior patterns by frequent repetition. A less thoughtful definition is doing the same things repeatedly so that the thing you're doing becomes natural or involuntary. One habit that I've acquired over the years that may or may not be a good one, depending on who you might ask, is that I employ too many commas in my writing, and along with that, I'm dreadfully notorious for long, run-on sentences. At least that's what someone I respect deeply tells me when she reads my emails and sermons. But habits often create healthy stability and predictability. Let me illustrate it this way. Growing up a mile from Realfoot Lake, I don't know if you know where Realfoot Lake is, um, close to the Mississippi River, three miles by five miles. If you've not visited, you're, you're not the better for it. Great place. Well, growing up there, I became a fan of various habitats. I enjoyed going fishing on the east side of Realfoot in May because every year at that time, the bluegill began to, to spawn on, around the lily pads. And this was a, a unique ecosystem that differed from other parts of the lake, but things there were predictable. And because of God's handiwork there, this place had its own habit of growing the same lily pads every year and being the same kind of 
a, a fish living in there in that spot, and the temperature of the water was basically the same at a certain time of year, and the fish behaved the same way year by year. And that kind of stability helped me to successfully, I might say, enjoy and navigate that specific habitat. Well, what we notice in the book of Acts is that God has habits. Of course, he's always has as many surprises as we journey along by his good pleasure. But, but as the Holy Spirit worked through the book of Acts, he didn't do so apart from the word of God. It stood front and center, destroying falsehoods, tearing down strongholds, raising the humble from the dust, creating new creatures in Christ, explained and preached and brought to bear upon the mind the, the wielded word is God's way. And everywhere we turn in the New Testament, there's this glorious predictability in which the Spirit of God takes the Word of God by which the people of God are birthed and by which they grow. So we'll glean this, this God-sanctioned pattern from the text as we go. But notice first, the Word of the Gospel is moving to places it had never taken root before. A display of God's wisdom for sure. See this in this. What persecution perpetuated mission. What persecution perpetuated mission. Don't say that fast five times. Well, from the starting block, this is what we find in the beginning of verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. The believing Jews had been displaced, not by new job opportunities, or by the tyranny of Roman rule, not yet, but by persecution from their Jewish siblings. And I use siblings very, very lightly, loosely. This persecution arose. The atmosphere towards believers in Jesus ranged from suspicion to testy to hostile. Stephen was this proto-martyr and this deadly venom of the, of the Jewish community that was expressed towards Stephen. It continued to spread. But the upshot of such mistreatment, undoubtedly unintended in its effect by the perpetrators, was that those who were fanned out didn't stop bearing Christ's gospel. Acts 1.8 was coming to fruition. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so the people of Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, they were oblivious what was about to take root among the peoples, the mission of God to invade the world with the gospel of his son, it was underway. Old values would be uprooted and new ones established. New words and concepts employed, allegiances abandoned, relationships restored and strengthened and beautified, stewardship reimagined, artwork reinvented. Because when the gospel takes root, it does its own rooting out. It does its own creating in a new way every day. And that change of life often rubs unbelievers the wrong way. As we begin to see in verse 19, the Jews attempt to stamp out God's people. It backfired, didn't it? A scattered people led to a scattered gospel seed. You know, hatred often backfires on those who oppose the Lord, and it's almost as if... It's almost as if 
this divine irony that's threading through life and suffering is hidden from them. And it very well, very well may be by God's hand. This first burst of persecution was met by a more impressive surge of the gospel. And what we need to keep in mind, always keep in mind, when we're involved in the work of the Lord in the, in the world, or even locally, is that it's never more power plays. It's never more impressive personnel or larger budgets or clever ideas. The energizing of missions is the Holy Spirit wielding the word through a worshiping people. And those worshiping people often bear up under the weight of mistreatment and injustice simply because they claim Christ as Lord who demands allegiance of all. Acts 17. And through them, the Lord makes his strength shine through that kind of weaknesses, that kind of weakness. But what do we make of the remainder of verse 19? Speaking the word to no one except Jews. Curious. Did Peter or any of the other apostles instruct them with this sort of to the Jew first, then the Gentile method that Paul expressed in the early chapters of the book of Romans? Well, that seems like it's the case. In fact, later on in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas take the same line when they speak to the agitated Jews. Again in Antioch, we read there, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. That was a practice that the early church employed. As they go into a city, they enter the synagogue first. And on the surface, they, this may sound a bit like favoritism, the very thing that Acts, verse, Acts 10 and 11 destroyed with this gospel going to this Gentile military leader named, what's his name? Cornelius, thank you. Well, let me offer an illustration that may relieve us of the thought that favoritism may, is not really in play here. When an author has book two published, and book one was a smashing success in a particular city, let's say Memphis, what city would make his or her short list to visit for the book two signings? Well, it would be that same city, wouldn't it? The writer would go on to place where, go to the place where the first work was understood and well-received. Well, going to the Jews was a similar circumstance. They already had the law. They already had the prophets and the covenants, the promises. And so going to the Jews first was the intent of showing them that God, yes, he kept the promises that he made in the old covenant, and he did that by establishing the new one in Christ. That was the approach. Yes, God was expanding his kingdom beyond the Middle East, but this doesn't negate God's plan to save Jews by the same gospel. John Stott summed it up well. It's not that the evangelizing Jews of the Jews must stop, but that evangelizing the Gentiles must begin. So beginning with, the, with Cornelius, the Gentile, hearing the gospel from Peter, the Jew, the, the fuller expression of the mission of God begins, verse 20, but there were some of, them, some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, I may have some map lovers in here. Cyprus is an island about 100 miles off the coast of Syria. If you have that in your mind, maybe you do, maybe you don't. It's okay if you don't. Uh, Cyrene is about 800 miles west of that, a coastal city off of, north, of a northern African continent. 
these unnamed disciples of, of the way have come a long way, having something like missionary status as they enter the city of Antioch. Antioch was the, the third most prominent city in the Roman Empire at this time, just behind Rome and Alexandria. It was named after the father of one of Alexander the Great's generals. At the time, it was largely a, a Greek city known for its impressive building structures and diversity. It teemed with about half a million citizens. It's a big city. The number was ballooned by two main facts. First, the, the general referenced earlier was named Seleucus. That's important because when he took power, he was known for offering equal citizenship to all who lived in Antioch. And that offer lasted about, oh, four centuries or so, well into the time of our text this morning. And second, the reason why that number is so large, a little less than a century before this, under, Roman, uh, under the Roman general named Pompey, Antioch was granted the status of a free city, which meant the taxes that were levied by Rome, they were sort of exempt from some of those. And so it made sense that some Jews dis, were dispersed and they went into Antioch and they ended up there. Some say as many as 25,000 Jews but it also made sense for other nationalities to come knocking. One of the nicknames for Antioch was Queen of the East because there there were Persians and Indians, and many Chinese came to call Antioch home. Well, people coming into the city from all over the world was not an oddity then. It made sense. These islanders and North Africans came and preached Christ among the Hellenists. This word Hellenists, there's a there's a term that Paul uses most often, and this is sort of a, a, a knockoff of the term. And this meant that Greek-speaking Jews uh, here, but, it, but the term sort of suggests that these were most likely just Greek speakers in general. It could be a Jew or it could be a Gentile. It could mean a, a Greek-speaking Gentile who's totally unfamiliar with the ways of Judaism or one who's completely comfortable in that world, even comfortable with some of the the words and concepts that these Cyrenians and Cyprians were using. Well, whoever, are, whoever they are, this is clear. Despite this fresh persecution, the pursuit of God in establishing a church among the Gentiles and winning converts was well underway. And he would win them in Antioch, just like he wins anyone, anywhere, at any time, with his people telling others of the good news of the Lord Jesus. Persecution didn't stifle the mission. By God's overriding purpose, it extended it. So I want us to notice that. But notice this next. What God's providence works. As Christ was preached, fruit followed. The holy habit of God was being witnessed. Word preached. Spirit regenerates. Repentant faithlings birthed and discipled it. And notice this not-so-subtle description of who is doing what in verse 21. The hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to Him. Yes, the people were believing, but underneath that believing, there was the hand of the Lord. The previous text in Acts 11 highlighted the exact sovereignty of our text. Verse 18 then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And these are not so subtle or cloaked references regarding the underlying cause of belief and repentance. God granted. 
the Lord's hand with him. So I know Randy and I know this church. We're, we don't go around apologizing about believing and teaching on predestination and election and sovereignty. The word states these things without blushing. God's the first cause. Being dead in our trespasses and sins, we would have stayed away if not for the breath of God's Spirit invading our lives. If regeneration doesn't precede faith, then God is stripped of glory. Curtis Vaughn states that the hand of the Lord was probably a Semitic expression connoting God's power. God must exercise dead, raising power if our neighbors are to come to Christ. God's wind must blow on the lost if they are to come to life. And prophets such as Ezekiel and Ezekiel 37 had no misgivings about seeing the vision of the Lord and communicating that he makes dry bones live. Paul didn't have any misgivings about this either, nor Peter or John or hear from Luke. This truth of God's sovereignty and saving is not as controversial as as genuine, well-meaning believers make it out to be. J.I. Packer, in his typical calm, fatherly, seasoned fashion, he he gives us a couple of reasons why Christians believe that God is sovereign in salvation no matter what theological persuasion they claim. First, he says believers know who to thank for their conversion. You've never said in public or private that you're grateful for your spiritual perception or your ability to be smart about God's offer to you in Christ. You don't go around saying how lucky you are that other Christians started coming around you one day or you serendipitously attended the the worship service and heard the gospel. You don't say those kinds of things. You never attributed your repentance and faith to personal prudence or sound judgment. Saving yourself with a a little bit of God's push has never occurred to your mind as a follower of Jesus. Dividing the credit with God for our salvation as a point of conviction. None of us have done this. Why? Because we know with a spiritual instinctiveness what Jonah cried out from the gut of that beast in the middle of the ocean. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He gives it. We know who to thank, don't we? Second, stop mentions that w- when we pray, it shows that we believe God to be the first cause in salvation. We don't pray that God would only bring the lost so far to then give them the freedom to find the rest of the way. We don't do these kinds of things. No, we pray, we ask. No, we beg. Lord, save my children. Lord, save my coworker. Lord, save my spouse. Because we know that God is the one who saves, and he saves to the uttermost. Packer expresses why we resist divine sovereignty and salvation. He writes, the root cause is the same as most errors of the church, the intruding of rationalistic speculations, the passion for systematic consistency, a reluctance to recognize the existence of mystery and let God be wiser than men, and a subjecting of Scripture to the supposed demands of human logic. People see that the Bible teaches man's responsibility for his actions. They do not see how this is consistent with the sovereign lordship of God over all those actions. 
They're not content to let the two truths live side by side as they do in the Bible. The desire to oversimplify the Bible by cutting out mysteries is natural to our minds. And it is not surprising that even good people should fall victim to this. So, this text guards us from succumbing to oversimplification. Both are true. The responsibility of mankind and the sovereignty of God. But it does more than this, doesn't it? Our God-given impulse to relate to God as sovereign Lord leads us to humbly worship Him, doesn't it? It puts our faces in the sand or the dirt or the clay, wherever you live. Jesus alone saves. We should avoid claiming what only belongs to Him glory. The truth that God initiated our death to life conversion gives us a firmer assurance of salvation that we would otherwise possess. The early church understood this. They talked and spoke to one another in terms of the hand of the Lord. They understood what Barnabas meant when he, the Bible says here, came and saw the, not the wrath of God, he came and saw the grace of God operating. What a descriptor of a, of, the, of a New Testament gathering. Somebody comes in this door and says, whoa, the grace of God is here. What a description. Isn't that encouraging? It must have done a number to people who saw these things. But notice in our text that it's not only the sovereign grace of God at work, but that His work is happening on a new scale toward the Gentiles. Cornelius and his household being saved were foundational, but now God begins to build his church with many Gentiles living, living out in him. And they were living stones, a great number of them, Luke writes. It's had to shake up this metropolitan of modernism, this haven of pagan religion that would have marked every city fashioned by the Roman Empire. This was, this was a work of grace. And the largeness of it only strengthened the reality of it. This was a worthy sequel to Pentecost in many ways. The church at Antioch, she is a community, a new community by the working of sovereign grace. Do you view this place like this? Just the way you think about Trinity Reformed Baptist Church. It's a place where the grace of God is at work and moving. But notice what the church does from our passage. What the church does is first, she listens with cooperation. As the Spirit unpacked God's mercy and power in Antioch, the news of God's hand traveled back to the place where it all started. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. The ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. You know, every church has ears. The question is, to whom or to what are they tuning in? I appreciated Jeff's comments earlier in Sunday school. Three times Paul tells Timothy not to wander off into irreverent, silly myths, which are probably based on some of the more eccentric and exaggerated commentaries of the Old Testament. Today we might be instructed to refrain from wandering into conspiracy theories and sound bites. 
which only aids in turning us away from the truth. We become promoters of speculation rather than the stewardship we have from God. It's hard to focus and anchor our lives in what is truly true regarding God's kingdom if we're allowing this discord of voices to gobble up all of our time. And in our day with an overload of information coming from all angles and various sources with more hidden agendas than a James Bond movie, I'm not sure the church is making a good grade in this either. Some of us need to mute and unplug and unsubscribe. Because it's affecting the unity between brothers and sisters in local churches and among churches, places. In terms of commitment and devotedness, Fox and Facebook and Fresh Air on NPR, these should never compete or eclipse the word and the church and the kingdom of God advancing in this world. Never. It's hard to compete with them. I get 45 minutes with you. And you have the rest of the week to go on those places. We have to guard our hearts, brothers and sisters, in this. The devil is using it. And it's a powerful tool in his hand right now. With the church in the Jerusalem, they were listening for the right things. The gospel has a, established a large group of Jews and Gentile brothers and sisters And the magnitude of that reality cannot be overblown by this guy here speaking to you this morning. I mean, they send Barnabas to witness this congregation that's literally like no other. I mean, we can say that. I mean, Southwoods is like some other churches and so is Trinity Reform. But this is literally, in this day, like no other. You can bet that believers in Antioch were not alone in noticing the hand of the Lord. A faithful church makes noise in her community. Always. Of course, it's often suppressed and ignored and ridiculed. But, but when genuine gospel faith is working itself through love in a group of people, those in darkness will sometimes feel the heat of the light, even if they're blinded to the source of the light. And people, if they're blinded to the source of the light of Christ in this place, they need to feel the heat of it by your tenderness and love and service for your community and your world. You can just imagine the quizzical looks, questions, commentaries that came from various peoples that were seeing this in Antioch. What a bizarre-looking group of people here. There are Jews here, but, but they're meeting on the first day of the week and not their normal Sabbath. Am I sure I'm seeing this correctly? They're, they're Jews and Gentiles together? This is something new, maybe a new cult filled with the talk of a crucified man of royalty whose flesh they are said to be eating and whose blood they are saying to be drinking, calling themselves living sacrifices. And they're talking about Adam and Noah and Moses and David, but these giants in their own scriptures aren't near the heart of what they're teaching. They're teaching about somebody else. And neither is their sacred law at the heart, nor their revered prophets at the center. And these Gentiles, they stop visiting the temples of the gods and and declare themselves to be a temple, a dwelling place of divinity itself. And they can't stop talking about this Bethlehemite reared in a normal Jewish home. He's all but unimpressive until they talk about him being raised from the dead. And they're calling him 
the God-man, the promised Messiah. Some say he's simply the son of a carpenter named Joseph, yet the Jews and Gentiles together, they're calling him the son of God. Almighty, wonderful counselor, prince of peace, ruler over all. Rome's not going to take too kindly to what's going on in that place. The world didn't know what they were looking at because it's always been true. A faithful church always disorients the world. This place is confusing to those guys playing that music over there. They don't get it. They're disoriented by what we're doing. Because the world can't take the pulse of the church accurately. And that makes sense because they're dead in their sins. Because the church is in so many ways an anomaly, isn't she? She's strong though weak. She's humble yet confident. She's holy yet quick to call herself otherwise. She's dying daily but full of life and vigor. This is the church. Our text states that Barnabas saw these kinds of character traits in this sprawling new congregation at Antioch. And that verse 23 says, he was glad. It made him, it made him happy to see this. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. The word exhorted here is probably a play on words with Barnabas' name. The son of encouragement encouraged this church on training wills, encouraged by them. His name and his actions, same root word. Your, your parents with young children, you, you know what, what this, uh, you know what, that your child needs this kind of encouragement. Maybe they're filled with fear and doubt when they're trying to do something. You know that the thing they're trying to do is nothing new under the sun, but, but for them to do it, they need your assurances. Barnabas, this person of encouragement, was the right person on assignment for this young flock. The church at Jerusalem had her ears on the train track of God's grace. They heard, they desired to know more. They send Barnabas, and his outlook on them is more than favorable. And after his encouragement, they indeed remain, the Bible says here, they remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And God uses them. As a great, the Bible says, as a great many people were added to the Lord. End of verse 24. Barnabas, the encourager, is so encouraged by this new church start that he believes a longer-term investment is a must Verse 25 and 26. So he went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, I wonder how, he, I wonder how that conversation went. Not like, Paul, do you want to go? Like, no, Paul, you're coming. I wonder if, you, if, the, if the young man, Barnabas, sort of took control here. Well, he brought him to Antioch, into verse 26. The apostle to the Gentiles had to witness what God had promised him on the road to Damascus. But Paul would do more than see with his own eyes. Note next that the church, secondly, perseveres in the word. A significant point I've held off mentioning until now is that the Jerusalem church running point guard and leading mission efforts had no influence up to this point over this new gathering. Zero. David Gooding goes even further in his assessment. He writes, The apostles at Jerusalem neither initiated nor directed nor control the Antioch mission. Indeed, the church there was founded before the church at Jerusalem ever heard of it. The Lord himself was behind the whole operation, granting good success. It's just like the Lord, isn't it? 
Even the apostles weren't all absolutely necessary in church plants. God's Spirit was there, and so was God's Word. And this is important for us to consider. Look, if Southwoods Baptist Church or Trinity Reformed Baptist Church, if we ever think that our congregation is indispensable in any way, we're just not. The Lord doesn't need this place here to to carry on His work in the world, to carry on His work in this neighborhood. We must understand it to be a privilege to be a part of Christ's kingdom and to play some part in His great work in the world. But we need to be clear on this. His kingdom is forever. With us or without us, it's forever. If everything is brought to nothing by His permission in my own personal life or the life of our respected churches, God will continue His habits of gaining glory in this world, of building His church through the gospel of His Son. That's worth thinking about. We know that the word of the gospel brought these Antioch converts together as a church, but What would it be that would sustain this fellowship of Jews and Gentiles worshiping together? What would help the divisions that cropped up? You you know there were divisions. We answered that in the middle part of verse 26. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. Would would Barnabas and and Paul teach them how to make tents? Maybe as as a side gig. How to celebrate each other's cultural distinctions? I doubt that very seriously. Paul and Barnabas gave them the steady diet of the Word, mainly as it pertained to Jesus, King of all the earth and highest heavens, and how Jesus is at the center of the whole Scriptures, like he says in Luke 24 about himself. So the Spirit took the Word taught by the encourager and the apostle, and for a year they learned what it meant to be faithful, Bible-absorbing disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what sustained them. And we notice one such correlation here where the church, third, offers merciful service to those in need. The recipe for discipleship will never be modified. The habit of God will never be amended upgraded or exchanged for another God's choicest blessings, find those, those disciples who are tethered to the Word. And just as we have opportunity to release our witness upon the world every day, so do these Christians. Look how the opportunity materialized. Verse 27, Now in these days the prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them was named Agabus. He stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place during the days of Claudius. As the Spirit of God superintended the written word, he did the same with this spoken prophecy of Agabus, one of the prophets from Jerusalem. I tend to believe that these prophets were temporary, serving to confirm the gospel by giving instructions and guidance to the early church in its infancy. Yet with great concern, or with great concern, we see here that Agabus is saying that something terrible is going to happen. And what we need to know that, though this is pretty astounding, it's not the center of things here. No, no the, the role of the prophets is not at the heart of what's going on here. It's how the church is conduct, conducting herself. Perhaps this was not the first real test of this young fellowship. We can be certain that the Jew-Gentile issue was 
had been addressed probably more than once as they work through that to some degree. It's a, not a terrible reach to, to think that they scuffled a bit over how to interpret the Torah, the law of God. But a new challenge faced them considering this foretold famine. How would they respond? Would they turn their faces away from the needy? Would their collective message be, go in peace, be warmed and filled? No. Verse 29 and 30 say this. So the disciples determined, according to everyone's ability, to rescind relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The grace that Barnabas witnessed at Antioch had come full circle. And it's not a difficult connection to make when we stew on the truth of God's grace. Grace rescued us from eternal suffering. The least the church can do is help those rescue others from temporal suffering. That's the very least we can do. Are we involved in this? The early church was. So Trinity, do you, do you see how the gospel breaks through? The church is not a club that plays games or a business that thrives on the transience of transactions or the coldness of empty handshakes. No, the church is a product of the Word and the Spirit that despite the many dangers, toils, and snares, she is planted in sovereign grace. She is nourished by the gospel and she bears the fruit of merciful service to the world. The church lives with a particular, lives within a particular habitat, graciousness, encouragement, joy, worship, a place that makes no trivial distinctions. The church's Lord manifests certain habits that turn the 21st century world upside down. He blesses His word that goes out. He accomplishes the word by the Holy Spirit. He saves and beautifies in holiness all who come to Him by faith. I know He turned my world upside down in 1987. And many of you would echo the same with a different year. But I ask all of us here today, have you taken a serious look at Jesus Christ? Have you? He stands, he lives forevermore in mercy. In mercy, he's able to make you a part of his family. And he's no respecter of persons. You feel unworthy, he'll take you. You feel unclean, he'll take you. You feel like you've done too much to gain his forgiveness? His death is sufficient. He'll take you. This is our Lord Jesus. He's in the habit of taking sinners and writing their names in his son's book of life, the Lamb's book of life. And he brings all that he saves into his heavenly habitat where there is no sin, no death, no suffering, and no division. And that's what we find when we look at the early church here. An outpost of heaven right here, like a, a local church is supposed to be. When I see a vision of what God's going to create one day, 
where there's none of, none of the divisions, no death, no suffering, no crying. I'm renewed by that thought. Are you renewed by that? What a refreshing thought to know what God is doing and what He's promised to do for us. Praise His name. Won't you pray with me, okay? Father, thank You for the sweetness of Your Word. It is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It is a hammer. It is a rock. It is honey to the tongue of our souls. Thank You for it. Thank You for preserving it. Thank You for uh, the incredible amount of, of, of truth that we have, yet much of it can be distilled down to Jesus Christ and Him crucified for us forever. Lord, thank You for Your Word today. I pray You would encourage us deeply. In Christ's name, I pray these things. Amen.